Welcome to the imperfect competition section of microeconomics. This is Dr. Terry Elin coming to you from home to wherever you are. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the economic ride. So when it comes to imperfect competition, so far we've seen the two extreme cases, perfect competition where we have an infinite amount of buyers and sellers. No one has any market power whatsoever. They just take the world price as given. And then we saw the other extreme where they only have one seller who has ultimate market power, controls the price, and therefore controls the quantity that they sell, and they could just dictate what price that they want. And now we have two other categories which sit in between those two extremes. So you have a certain amount of sellers, it's on an infinite amount, and depending on the type of good that you have, uh, you'll have either oligopoly or monopolistic competition. In the oligopoly case, the sellers, which are not infinite, are selling what we consider an identical product. So typical examples of this is uh, thinking of gasoline at Esso, Petro-Canada, or any of the other main brands. Well, if you don't really differentiate between regular gasoline at one or the other, and you're just kind of competing on price, that is a clear oligopoly situation. And then if we think about monopolistic competition, the big difference here is that you have differentiation of products. You have a certain level of branding involved. So here you could be thinking about a certain clothing line uh, from a brand or another brand or comparing a BMW to a Honda or any other kind of uh, things that have a certain brand attached to it. So through differentiation, we'll have a different analysis than if we're dealing with completely identical products. Uh, so let's just dive into the oligopoly case first, which is the, the case where we have these identical products. So the case that comes in when we think about identical products is that if you imagine that there's two gas stations on the same kind of street corner or like a facing each other in a certain city, uh, well, they have two options essentially. They could either charge like a price to try to attract more people to them, but their profits is always dependent or their sales is always dependent not only on what they charge, but what the other person in front of them is charging. So they're kind, they're always kind of interacting and they're always adjusting their prices depending on what the other person does. So there's a lot of strategy going on there. And based on that, you have a situation where if both parties could agree to charge a higher price and not really compete with the other guy and just kind of like fix a higher price, they can make more profit. So imagine the two gas stations are currently selling gasoline at let's say a dollar a liter and at a moment, they, they, they have a discussion, they're at a common party together, and they talk to each other and they say like, well, we're the only two gas stations in this area. And people need gas. We know that uh, people are inelastic to changes in gas prices. If you increase it by 20%, sales may only go down by 5%. So we should actually increase the price of gasoline. So they have this incentive to kind of try to maximize their profits, their joint profits by, there's many different words that you could use. We could say forming a cartel or acting as a monopoly or just kind of colluding with one another. So all of those three kind of buzzwords, cartel, colluding and forming a monopoly 
all mean the same thing, which is that they would both agree on either a price or quantity to sell. In this case here, it just makes more sense to think about it as price. And the same thing could go for Molson and Labatt, that they could just price fix, and that way they could increase their common profits and uh, just do better. So if we imagine that they're both selling at a dollar versus they're both selling at a dollar twenty, naturally they'll both be making more money at a dollar twenty because it's uh, a higher price. It's more of a monopoly type price, and we have a situation where people don't have alternatives. This is an, an elastic good, so it kind of works out well. Wouldn't work out for every type of good out there, but for this type, it works out really well. But the thing is, is that even though there is an incentive to cooperate and to collude and, and maximize your profits, afterwards, seeing that your sales depend on your price and your competitor's price, well, if you started from a price of a dollar and you agreed on a dollar twenty, well, maybe you might be interested in a, on a given morning to drop your price to like 117. And that all of a sudden, everyone that's driving by sees both of your businesses and sees that you're a slightly cheaper. So you get the bulk of the consumers. You get like more than half of the consumers all of a sudden. And you've just dropped kind of like your, your margin by a few percentages and uh, you make more money. But if your friend who he thought you had agreed on a price of $1.20, sees you at $1.17, well, he'll have an incentive to undercut you a little bit, and then you'll have an incentive to undercut, and then you'll kind of end up in that same kind of competitive situation that we had initially that you might have like a, an equilibrium price of a dollar. All of this process can be analyzed through what we call game theory. So game theory is uh, just any time in economics we think about different actors, different agents taking decisions at the same time and my decision has an impact on your outcome and so on, we need to use what we call game theory. So it's not just about games. Yes, you can model tic-tac-toe or anything else with game theory. And I teach a class purely on game theory. The whole semester is on game theory. It's a really interesting subject because you look at interactions, you look at uh, how you could kind of negotiate better through uh, knowing all of this. And in this class here, we only look at one of the typical games of game theory, which is the prisoner's dilemma game, which is a situation where uh, you have two agents, uh, you have two possible choices, and naturally there is one outcome that's better for both. There's one outcome that we tend to kind of go towards, like in this example of a dollar dollar. And then you see all of this kind of situation of if we try to collude, there's always going to be an incentive to screw the other person over and uh, do better than them by not acting on what you had predetermined that you were going to do. So what are the concepts that we have to know through game theory? So obviously this will be easier to learn with the, the table and uh, the videos, but if I just think of the big concepts here, well, the first big concept you should know is the, the idea of a dominant strategy. So we talk about uh, like in all of these games, so let's say we think of tic-tac-toe or chess or anything else, you have a series of actions that you can take. And if we think about uh, the gas station, well, you have a series of prices you can charge. Uh, and if we think about like the prisoner's dilemma, well, you could either confess or you could deny all allegations. So you have choices that you can take. A dominant strategy 
would say that regardless of what the other person does, this is my best choice. This is what I should do. And uh, so naturally, that's not always the case. If I think about rock, paper, scissors, for instance, which could also be modeled with game theory, well, there is no dominant strategy. If I think my opponent's going to play rock, my best choice is paper. If I think he's going to play paper, my best choice is scissors. If I think he's going to play scissors, my best choice is rock. So based on that, there is not a dominant strategy. Each of your choices is dependent on what the other person does. But if you do have a dominant strategy that would say that if he chooses rock, paper, scissors, or if he chooses confess or deny, I will always choose this action. And that is typical of the prisoner's dilemma type game where in this case here you would always choose one of the two actions regardless of what the other person does that is the situation of a dominant strategy and then there is the concept of a nash equilibrium and a nash equilibrium is a state in which you are in that since you could only alter your own actions you do not have an incentive to alter your own actions and all the other players don't have an incentive to alter their actions either. So in the Prisoner's Dilemma game, uh, the kind of like confess, confess can be a Nash equilibrium. In uh, the gas station example, setting a price of a dollar and a dollar could be a Nash equilibrium at that state. No one wants to undercut the other anymore. It's not profitable anymore to do so. Uh, they don't have an incentive to increase their price because then the sales go to the other person. I would have an incentive to change my opponent's price, but I can't. You can't just say I put a gun to the, this person's head and I, I, I tell him you're going to confess that you did the, this crime while I deny. Like you, that's not possible. You could only alter your own actions. So a Nash equilibrium would be a state where... And if we start in this situation or if we arrive to this situation, no one's going to have an incentive to change. So it's a stable outcome. But we can think of, again, rock, paper, scissors. There is no such thing as a pure strategy Nash equilibrium. If I want to become super techie about this, if you do game theory, you'll see that there is a mixed strategy Nash equilibrium. But let's forget about that for a second here. There is no in pure form, which is like a simple action, there is no strategy that you should always take. You can't say, I will always take rock, regardless of what the other person does. And if he chooses paper, I'm just going to keep on playing rock. You know, like yeah, you're, if the, your opponent catches on to this, he's going to win big versus you. So those are the two big concepts that we have to understand. And then the third kind of thing that gets discussed uh, sometimes in long answer questions is uh, the, the idea of a cooperative ideal or a better outcome for everyone. And in that game, typically, like if we think of the gas station situation, that would have been both charging a dollar twenty. If they can both agree and maintain that, it's going to be better than both charging a dollar. So that is the cooperative ideal. But it's always that self-interest versus group interest relationship that kind of mixes things up. So that's essentially what you need to know for oligopoly in this class. Oligopoly can be analyzed graphically, but it's quite more complex than the other ones. So we do not cover it in this Principles of Microeconomics course. We cover it in more advanced courses, but we don't cover it in this class. So if you think about knowing the graphs for all market structures in this class, 
don't be surprised that we don't look at the graph for oligopoly. We've seen it for perfect competition. It was two graphs. We saw it for monopoly was only one graph and we will see it as well for monopolistic competition. And it's only going to be one graph as well. Oligopoly, no graphs. Don't worry about it. One thing to maintain is in all market structures, profit maximizing condition is always where marginal revenue is equal to marginal cost. And it gets a little bit more complex when you monopolize, but it's still the case. Um, so just keep that in mind that that still applies, even though we don't really look at it graphically and we don't really analyze it in this class. If you were to do intermediate micro or game theory, you would see how you could easily set that up. And then moving on to monopolistic competition, which is a common situation that we have in the marketplace because a lot of the goods that we buy are not just commodities. They're not just goods that you don't really differentiate between a two by four at Rona or Home Depot or another hardware store. So we often buy like computers, phones, cars, clothing, uh, anything else like, uh, like watching a movie or anything like everything could kind of have differentiation associated to it. So in that front, since everyone has this kind of differentiation, there's certain level of branding. These businesses do have some level of market power in the sense that compared to perfect competition, everyone could choose their own price. Like we can't just take world prices given. Uh, if I decide to brand my computer as so much better than your computer brand, well, I could charge more for it. It might not actually be better, but as long as people perceive it as being better, I could charge whatever price I want. So there is a certain level of branding, which allows you to set your own price, which allows you to have a certain level of market power. So because of that, the way we represent monopolistic competition is the same way as we would represent monopoly. So if you think of the graph and you're wondering, well, this kind of looks like the same thing we did in the previous chapter. Well, you're right. It looks exactly the same thing. You're going to have a downward sloping demand curve, a twice as steep sloping down marginal revenue curve, then your marginal costs. And then where they intersect is your optimal quantity if you choose to produce. And then you'll just go all the way up and try to find the max price you can charge for that quantity by going to the demand curve. And that will be your price. So same mechanics as Monopoly. The distinction here happens where what will happen over time. So you start the new yoga studio in a village that doesn't have any yoga studios and it catches on. Well, all of a sudden, in a monopoly, if you were able to block all entrants, well, that would remain the case forever. But in a situation where you cannot have barriers to entry to blocking competitors to come in, well, if people are noticing that you're leading a pretty profitable endeavor and it seems really fun and uh, not too demanding or not too stressful, well, a lot of more businesses will, or a lot more individuals will want to start businesses in the same industry as you. And as that happens, comp competition comes in. So the monopoly graph framework that we've seen alters over time as new entrants come in. And the same thing goes for any technology out there. When you're the first and only one, you'll have more monopoly power. And as more and more competition comes in and there's more and more alternatives out there, well, you're kind of like market power and your uh, uh, like demand for your product changes. So if you think about it, if you kind of 
close your eyes and reflect for a second here and you think, well, how would this graph change as more and more people enter? Well, think about any industry out there, like you have one or two players and now you have multiple selling a similar product. Well, some of the people that used to consume from you will consume from someone else. And all of a sudden, since there's more alternatives, people will be more responsive to differences in prices. So if you're charging $15 a session and a bunch of new ones came in and are charging $12, well, all of a sudden people will be more responsive to price differences because we've seen in the elasticity chapter, the more substitutes there are, the more response there is to a difference in price. So what we expect the demand curve to do in this graph is it's going to shift left as the market gets diluted. There's less demand for your specific product and it will typically get flatter as well. And as that happens, the marginal revenue curve will also adjust. It's twice as steep than, marginal, than demand. So if it becomes flatter, it's going to become flatter as well, but still twice as steep. And it's going to adjust uh, over time. And where will this outcome lead? Well, unless you could constantly be innovating and finding a way to differentiate yourself from other players, which is the case with technological firms, you might like have new gadgets coming up. Like if you're selling cameras, you might have like a new feature that your competition doesn't have and they only get like a year down the road. So you could always have like a certain appeal that people are still driving towards your specific product. But if it's that's not the case, if you're like an excavator or your cell phone company or your yoga studio and it's just getting overrun by yoga studios in your area, well, over time, we expect the demand curve to shift left and flatten till we reach an equilibrium similar to perfect competition. That's why there's the word competition there where we have zero economic profits in the long run over time. And that kind of makes sense. If you think about it, let's say a friend of yours opens up a yoga studio and they were working for someone else and they were earning like 40,000 a year and they're making like $100,000 a year. Well, some other people will notice that this person's driving a fancy car and doing well. They'll open up businesses, market's gonna get diluted. So all of these businesses might only make 70,000 and then over time, they're gonna start going down and down and down till they reach a point where no new person wants to come in and the reason for no new person want to come in is because they're not gaining more profits or more revenues by starting their own business than just working for someone else and that's where things stabilize themselves once again so hopefully that becomes clear the distinction between all four market structures so we saw the two extremes and now we saw the two middle cases and obviously we kind of just glance through them. The middle cases, although they're interesting, they can become a lot more complex. There's a lot of things that we assume to keep it simple at this stage, but the more advanced you get in microeconomics or game theory, the less we assume those things and we it becomes more and more realistic, but much more hard to analyze as well or to model. Uh, but hopefully just scratching the surface was interesting to you guys. And uh, I wish you guys all the best. I'll catch you guys next week when we start covering taxation, which is the before last chapter. And then 
externalities and environmental problems for the final chapter. Have a good week. Talk to you soon.